Any any prayer requests tonight for you guys? Um, I do, Bob. This is Julie. Hi. Yeah, Julie, go ahead. Uh, Penny, uh, my sister-in-law, is um, serious depression with some um, concerning uh, thoughts. Sorry, with some concerning faults? Thoughts, thoughts, scary thoughts. I'm afraid, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm sorry. Suicidal thoughts, suicidal thoughts. Oh, yes. oh God, thoughts. Oh. How old is she, Julie? She's 56. Gosh. Okay, you have our prayers for sure. Um, God, I can't tell you the special kind of pleasure I feel um, knowing how seriously you all take prayers. Um, Julie, just know that. I think you know that of these groups. So, and any other any other prayers? I'd like to pray for uh, Robert Gonzalez. He, we have prayed for him before. It was a while back. He, he, he has a mantle cell cancer, and unfortunately, that mantle cell is horrible. It keeps coming back. This is, I think, this is. I can't. I lost count. If it's his third or fourth bout with it, so he has a um, biopsy. I think he had it today. He's got a pretty big lump there, down in his uh, groin area. It's just so sad. I mean, he's he's you know he's fought and fought and fought, but Connie, do they know? Do they have the outcome in the biopsy? Is it is it no, no they benign don't. or malignant or do you know yet? No, they don't. He's already had three bouts with cancer, so this is this would be his fourth, if I'm not mistaken. And um, the biopsy, I think he was having it done today. Okay. It's just a horrible cancer. Yeah, cancer's awful anyway, but anybody else, anybody else? I, I would like to add to that another cancer patient. Uh, I won't be here next Tuesday. I'll be keeping my grandchildren. Their other grandfather, whose name is Tom, is having uh, cancer surgery next, next Tuesday, and I would like to pray for him. Yeah, thanks, Ann. Thanks. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you, Lord, for um, the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself through the day for your presence with us. It's Lent. Um, it's a time in which you um, and um, our church in you uh, makes a greater effort to enter a darkness, each of us, to... Um, look at ourselves and our sins and more seriously take them on to discipline ourselves. It's why doing the purgatory was certainly special for me to, um, to see souls taking on their sins and doing something about it. It's a source of real inspiration. I don't think the purgatory is going to be less because we're going to see Dante or the Paradiso um, continuing to learn and grow closer to God. So we're at the end of Lent. Um, we look at Triduum coming up. Um, it's a dark night of the soul. The, all the things in the church are covered, shrouded. It's like we enter the tomb with the Passion reading last weekend. So strengthen all of us 
um, in whatever efforts we make um, to die to ourselves, to put ourselves away, trusting that when we do, um, help us not to turn away. You ask us to hate the world, to turn away from it, to not let it take a hold of us. So give us a courage to still deal with so many of the things that are wrong with our world, but bring you um, to it. Help us to get ourselves out of the way so that what we do bring has a greater courage, a greater humility. Strengthen all of us to do that, please. I ask for a special blessing on everybody here in this group in Easter through the rest of this Holy Week and particularly on Good Friday. Um, let everybody have a good Holy Week and when Easter comes, let this group genuinely feel a joy in being reborn again, renewed with your um, rising again. Let all of us share in that rising, whatever burdens we carry, and help us <laughs> to lift them up with a sense of rising so that the renewal is in each one of us genuinely. So we're not just going through the motions here. Let the darkness be real, the risen joy be real afterwards too. Um, ask a special blessing for, um, is it Penny, Julie? That's her name? Yes. Yeah. Let a blessing be on Penny, please watch over her. Um, let your spirit enter her heart, help her find a strength. Despair means no hope in you. Um, help her to find hope. Um, it's our one grave danger. Help her in her crisis to find you and to draw closer to you as for all of us, knowing how much we need you. So be with her, surround her with your graces. Let those who are, who are in contact with her um, help her find a hope. Um, I ask for a special blessing on Julie too, that she would carry her in her heart. Um, be with Julie during this trial as a, as a friend. Um, be with Robert in um, whatever happens with his um, the, the biopsies, all that's, all that's taking place right now. Um, watch over him, protect him. Let Once again, let this difficulty draw him closer to you. Be with Connie in that <laughs> large sweeping heart that she has. Um, I know she can handle it. Um, she carries a lot. Just continue to strengthen her and um, in her care for others. And be with Tom. Um, um, watch over him as well in, in whatever's going to develop with him in this cancer. Um, protect him, be with him, and once again be with Anne. Um, let her heart ease and help her to take her faith to whatever she does with um, Tom. I ask a special blessing on all of us this week, Michael, Connie, Mary, um, Dave, Cave, uh, Kay, sorry, um, Melody and the Shree family, for Suzanne and me and our family, for Bob, Karen. Um, I hope I'm not leaving anybody out. Francis and um, Julie, Mary, and um, Mary, Jane. Mary Jane. Where did you go? Um, uh, Maria, sorry, 
I'm not sure where you are, but be with Maria too. And I know she's um, she's got concerns for her friend um, um, discerning. So be with all of us. And in the re remainder of this Holy Week, um, let us not be afraid of the darkness, whatever sadness it um, draws us into. Whatever sadness or heaviness, let there be beneath it, underneath it, a, um, a gladness, a trust in you. Um, a death is real, hard to go through. Our, our trust is, however sad these things make us, um, we carry within us um, a, a joy, a trust in you, um, that you will answer them, and we will be with you in it. So be with us during this Holy Week, and let all of us um, this weekend have a good Easter. We offer these prayers in you, Lord Christ. Um, amen. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna just read the the next to the last. I think it's the next to the last um, passage section of Ash Wednesday. I'm not gonna comment on it all. I'm gonna let you guys go on it because I really want to get into the Paradiso. Um, you know, we've we've gone through these initial sections where Eliot um, begins with this what I'm calling a movement into the darkness because I, um, I do not hope to, to, to turn again. He's not turning to things of the world, even hope or faith or love. I, I sent you all that passage from East Coker, yeah? Dark, dark, dark. Didn't, I read that, didn't, didn't I? Help me out here, you guys, quick, because I'm... Did I... Um, I sent you a... Um, Included in the Ash Wednesday this last week, I sent you, I think, a passage from East Coker. It's the third section. Did, did we do it in class? We did. We did do it in class. Dark, dark, dark. Mm -hmm. They all go into the dark, and then he ends by saying, um, I said to my soul, be still, wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong. Did I, did I read that? Okay. Yes, Bob, you read it. Okay, thanks. Um, Remember that he began by by marking the beginning of Lent as a movement into the darkness to turn away from the things of the world. Even the supernatural virtues were offered to wait um, because it was in the waiting that we'd, we would find things. When Christ was on the cross, the disciples um, had no hope, um, and yet he surprised them all. So... Um, we went through those movements into the stairs, um, his appeals to Mary, um, that section where he was describing um, prophesying to the bones. This is the, the sixth section. Remember, he ends. Um, it's with that same voice that David has when he sp as a spokesman for um, Israel, the people of God in the Psalms. And he says, Oh, my people, what have I done into thee? Um, Will a veiled sister between the slender yew trees pray for those who offend her? It goes on. There are all those internal rhymes. All of them suggesting these rhymes, these same sounding words, these puns, that there is one word that is a you word. It's the word behind all of them. So all the various sounds that we make have their source in this one word. That's why the punning and the repeating of sounds is, is part of what Eliot's doing. Um... 
the desert in the garden, the garden in the desert, the way he reverses those, O drought, spitting from the mouth, the withered apple seed, O my people. Okay? In section 6, which I'm going to read now, he's picking some of the, these things up as he moves towards his conclusion. So, he, he begins with the same dependent clauses. Instead of saying, because I do not hope again, here he says, although I do not hope again, let me stop. Somebody supply me with an independent clause for that. Although I do not hope to turn again, give me an independent clause. What follows that? It's not, it's not now because I do not hope to turn, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn. It says now, although I do not hope to turn, although I do not hope. What's the independent clause? You guys didn't think when you signed up on this that you'd be getting a grammar lesson in grammar, right? <clears throat> What's the independent clause? Would it be before or after the uh, dependent clause, Bob? After. I mean, this is before the... I'm, I'm saying, I'm assuming this is before. I'm asking everybody, supply the independent clause for that. Because it can, it can come before or after, it doesn't matter. But we've got this to start with, so I'm asking, what's the independent clause? What is although signal? It's different from because. Although signifies signals what? Well, it's like saying it's, a, it's kind of a weaker version of in spite of. I'd say it's a pretty strong version of in. It signals opposition, you know, all... Um, Although I'm afraid of the test, I'll take it. Um, although I didn't do well, I'll stand up. Although the odds are against me, I will... It expresses opposition. So it is implying a positive thing. Now think about the difference between that and because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not. You know, I'm surrendering my will. Here, it's although I do not hope to turn again, it suggests... A positive. Whatever's going to follow here will be now positive. So a change is taking place. Okay? So let me leave it at that and I'll read it and, and leave you to meditate on it. Okay? Section 6, Ash Wednesday. Although I do not hope to turn again, although I do not hope, although I do not hope to turn, wavering between the profit and the loss, in this brief transit where the dreams cross... Oops. The dream crossed twilight between the birth and dying. Bless me, Father. Though I do not wish to wish these things from the wide window towards the granite shore, the white sails still fly seaward, seaward flying on broken wings. There's still this sense of a fragmented world, but it's as if something is there that's going to tie it together. It's so important to realize that he knows he's dealing with a fragmented world, but that's what's happened to our minds and hearts in the modern world. The white sails still fly seaward, seaward flying, unbroken wings. And the lost heart stiffens and rejoices in the lost lilac and the lost sea voices. And the weak spirit quickens to rebel for the bent golden rod and the lost sea smell, quickens to recover the cry of quail and the whirling plover, and the blind eye creates the empty forms between the ivory gates 
and smell renews the salt savour of the sandy earth. This is the time of tension between dying and birth, the place of solitude where three dreams cross between blue rocks. But when the voice is shaken from the yew tree, drift away, let the other you be shaken and reply. Blessed sister, holy mother, spirit of the fountain, spirit of the garden, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still, even among these rocks. Our peace is in his will, and even among these rocks, sister, mother, and spirit of the river, spirit of the sea, suffer me not to be separated, and let my cry come unto thee. Almost like a prayer. Amazing poem. Amazing poem. I'll give us one or two minutes just to respond. Um, any thoughts or responses to Ash Wednesday? Or the end of it? Go ahead, Ann. I just noted that it's switched in this. Originally, it was the twilight between birth and dying, and then it's between dying and birth. So he's moving on. Yeah. Good for you, Ann. Good for you. Melody, did you have something you looked like you were... No? Melly, your audio's not on? Still not on. Still not on. What's going on? Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Does it work now? Now. Yeah, now we hear you. Okay, sorry. Um, so to me, the poem started to me when he said, because I do not hope it was a dying and you kind of described it more of a dying to himself. And now at the end, although it's because, although I do not hope I lean on my faith, you know, I'm and like Ann said, I'm transitioning to uh, a life focused on my humanity to a life focused on God. So it's all about that transition or giving up, giving up hope and leaning on his faith. And it's beautiful. Yeah, it is. It is. Anybody else? I'm glad we did this for Lent. Did you have something? No, Connie, I'm sorry you all missed the beginning. Connie's almost always here in advance of me, and I was asking um, her and Ann if they had had the shots, and Connie very bravely was saying that she wasn't, that she's going to wait, that there's too much still that's, you know, hypothetical and um, up in the air, and <laughs> I was admiring her courage. Connie, I don't believe you don't have a response to this poem. No? Okay, I'm not going to put you on the spot more than that. So, oh, look at that. <laughs> now, now I'm, I'm going to come back to you. Okay, um, give me a minute because I, I wanted to bring something up on... Um, did you all get my note today about the scheme? 
and the intro. No, and hold. I want to bring that scheme up if I can for a second. Give me a minute here. Hold on. Okay, um, I'm going to come back to it, but it's here. But let me, I want to do just a very, very quick review of um, what we did last week and um, where we are. Um, just a, a, cu a couple of quick thoughts on the Purgatorio. The action of the whole Purgatorio um, is um, from... A sinner in a state of sin, um, gladly taking on burdens um, to ease them. You remember late in the, in the Purgatorio, Dante makes the comment, I came to cure my blindness. I want to underscore that tonight because of the point I'm about to make about the Paradiso. Dante knows, following St. Thomas in our church, that sight precedes emotions. Emotions are so often misleading. We, we don't know if the feelings you have are the right ones, even though at the time we have them, we feel they're right, because there are feelings. But we don't know if the feelings are right or not. Um, the mind see, the leads the heart um, in the church in Dante, um, Thomas, <coughs> because we don't know what to feel if we don't know what the feelings are about or to what they're directed. So in the Purgatorio, we can say pretty safely that, that most of the people are curing their, their blindness, that they're learning to see so that in seeing the truth better than they do, they can order their emotions, their hearts, to learn to love the way they should. So in the first three levels, pride, envy, wrath, we saw sinners undergoing um, penance that directly went to their sight to help them learn to see better the nature of goodness, the nature of virtue, the nature of sins. That's not less true in the upper regions in, in um, glut, av avarice, gluttony, and lust, because unless sinners see their sins, they're lost about what to do with them. So the whole action of the Purgatorio is towards recovering sight, seeing the truth, seeing themselves as they are, and undertaking penance to make their hearts better. That is to order their loves, because we learned in the middle of the Purgatorio that love is the cause of evil, that we love the wrong things or in the wrong way. So love in itself is not good. God made us all good. He made us to love. But what we do with those love, what we do with our emotions, can so often be disordered. So the whole action of the Purgatorio was to help each sinner become, this is really interesting, not only become the person he was given to be, whoever he was made because each one of us is different, but also to begin to move towards God to share in his divinity. The Greek word for that was theosis, man becoming God. The church fathers phrased it this way, that God took on man's nature so that man could become godly. So the whole direction of the Purgatorio is in the direction of each soul recovering his nature, one, the, the nature he had at one time, 
But that wasn't enough. Getting back to Eden was not man's goal. Because once Christ entered the world, when he took on man's nature and then returned, he invited man to follow him back and share in that divinity. So the purgatory only takes us back to Eden to recover that completeness we once had. Okay. Virgil was the guide in all of that. You know that. Um, um, but it, at the end of the Purgatorio, we know that Beatrice approaches. Um, she brings the whole history of the church and its sacramental nature to Dante to receive him so that the two of them can enter the heavens <clears throat> and the work that Virgil began or that, that Beatrice began with Virgil will be completed. The end of that work is not man returning to Eden. The end of that work is now God taking on um, a quality of divinity that he will become, these are St. Paul's words, adopted sons. They will partake in God's divinity. That's really remarkable. There is no other religion on earth to do that. But that was the whole of the purgatorio, okay? To return us to that point that we lost the completeness that we had in Eden. But that was only the beginning of something that would continue. Um, and what continues now is what we're going to, what we just briefly began last week, but um, which we'll take on in earnest now. Um, any, any comments about the purgatory or any questions before we put it behind us? I thought it was wonderful. I, I mean, it's a touching scene. Remember when Beatrice approaches and Dante turns to look for Virgil like a child to his mother, and he's not there. And we talked about that, that Stasius's um, arrival signals a change in what man does with his reason, that um, reason is transformed, reason itself, so that, so that as people move up purgatory, they learn to see the world differently. They don't see with the world's reason, because we know the world's reason so often goes bad world's emotions, the world's reason. Um, and then Dante says, I came to cure my blindness. So Stasius' arrival marks that point at which um, a pagan reason is transformed. And allegorically, I think we're meant to feel that Dante's reason is, has been changing all along, but it, it arrives at a certain point then in his growth, in his maturity, his, mat his maturing as a Christian. But even at Eden, there's something lacking. Even if he's recovered that ancient reason, or the, the wholeness he had in his powers of reason in his heart, there's still something wrong. He's got to deal with Beatrice. And when she arrives, she brings the whole church history, all of its sacramental life, to Dante to offer it to him. And that's the preparation for entering the heavens. So it's just important to see the whole action of the purgatory and what's behind it. But let me let me stop. Any any questions or comments? Certainly, any questions any of you have about Purgatory? It was a wonderful. Seems to me an amazing journey. Um, any? I'd like to ask a question. Yeah. At any at any point in Paradise, do we get to experience what a soul goes through um, in judgment? Because I feel like that's what I'm missing. I get that the souls in in hell don't recognize that they're sinful 
And that's why they're there. The souls in purgatory recognize their sinfulness and they're trying to work through it. And I'm a little wigged out with the souls in paradise just because of those levels. But you told me they're all going to be with God. So I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. But I guess what I'm missing is the moment when they stand before God. So is that ever talked about, or is that just something that skipped? Okay. No, that's really interesting that you would raise that question, Millie. I'm, I'm not sure I can give you, in fact, I don't think I can answer your question. Um, the, the, the best that I can do is say that, that that's part of what we were dealing with last week when we talked about why, why this confrontation with Beatrice when apparently purgatory purgation was over, the whole ordeal of purgatory was behind Dante. Virgil, Virgil says explicitly, I crown and mitre you, now whatever you do, you do freely. You know, He's okay. Um, so he's recovered that. There's a, there's a sense in which a judgment takes place with Beatrice for the reason we talked about that. My own sense of it is that, that um, what Dante's showing us is there's some original love each one of us has for somebody. Some, something, somebody. That original love was meant to link us to the Trinity, to God, but so often we let it go stray. We turn it towards other things. I and mean, we all know that. Dante, Dante's explicit about it. But in that moment, he's being, he's, pretty, he's being pretty severely judged by the one he most betrayed. And um, it's not Dante standing before Christ, but he is standing before a Christ-bearer. You know, I, I don't know what to say beyond that. What I do want to say in terms of the poem, just in my efforts to be faithful to it, is that um, when we pass from the earthly paradise and that, that dramatic exchange between Dante and Beatrice and enter the heavens, we know that what we're entering into is a world of forgiveness. The sins have been forgiven, washed away. In the river Lethe, in the river Unoe, in all, that we, in all that we experience, what transpired in the purgatorio, the sins are gone. So I've asked this question or made this comment before, you know, that the mode of knowing in hell is irony. The mode of knowing in purgatory is wonder. Right. Um, I'd say the mode of knowing in, it's wonder and joy. Um, it's a glad taking on of one's own faults. In Perdiso, it's um, forgiveness and joy. The soul's been forgiven. So I think, I think it was you even, I'm not sure, Melody, but one of you made the comment that you couldn't imagine anybody in paradise carrying any sadness or guilt or weight about sins, and that's absolutely true. The, the, the souls, remember, the, the, the memory of sins is washed, the memory of good deeds um, is, um, are recovered, so whatever goes on in the, in the soul of a human being at that stage will be nothing but joy and um, a spirit of wholeness because the soul's been forgiven. Um, so it's a, it's a different kind of light. It's a very different, it's a different way. You know, I've been thinking a, a good bit about this because I, we have, I haven't done this in a couple of years, but every time I do it, 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 it I always feel it touches off something new. I think most of us, I, I've made this comment before that so many of us hear priests going, pray for the poor souls in purgatory and 
Suzanne has always laughed at that, so have I, because it seems to me if anybody's in purgatory, <laughs> you, you want to just be glad for them because it should be a joy. I mean, a genuine joy. You're going to God. For God's sake, if you've got sins to do, I, I, I cannot believe the souls there don't do it happily. Um, but it seem, it's really interesting to see the way Dante takes the Catholic tradition and imagine it's concretely in this action. Because what we're seeing in the Paradiso is that the soul continues to move closer to God, deepening. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know if in Dante's mind or the mind of the church that that takes place in heaven, that, you, that your love and joy in God increases as you're there. Um, or if that's the tail end of purgatory, you know, I don't, I don't know how to imagine. But here in the poem, we're clearly in a paradisal condition. Dante hears the music of the spheres. When he leaves the earth, he ascends to the heaven. Everything he does then is going to be in a transformed mode. So we've left the world of sin, purgation, guilt. We, we're entering into a deeper faith and a faith that has a deeper kind of reason to it. The explanations that Beatrice gives, as you know, are going to be far deeper than anything that Virgil could give him. So, Dante's melody, I can't do better than that. I, but, I, but I, I mean, truthfully, in terms of the poem, because that's where we are, and I think it's the center of the church in some way. At this point, you should lose any concerns you have about judgment. Put those away. Right now, we're entering into joy. And I think the poem is sort of like a gift in you know, helping us to do that, to put that world away. Anybody else? Any other questions or thoughts? Before we begin, I, well, I've got this comment to make, but um, how are you guys finding the Paradiso? Honestly, be honest. Connie, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I'm reading it, but man, it's just not... Um it's just not happening in the brain. <laughs> it's very intellectual, very intellectual. You can look at the you can look at the inferno and the purgatory in terms of the action. Yeah. But it's all in human terms, so you can understand hell and sin, and you know. Um, but here, we've entered a world that's largely theological. We we are, and I and it's getting to the point that I want to make here. We are getting close to the mind of God. Um, in a in a Protestant world in which we live in, you know, faith is faith and reason are separated. Faith takes care of everything, so you don't have to think about things anymore. Um, that's not so in our faith, and it's not so for Dante. There, I mean, the one thing you have to say about the Purga, or the Paradiso is that we're seeing that that there are these depths to God. That the source of reason is God. He made us with, you know, with the capability to reason. He is reason itself. Um, so we're entering into the depths of um, the mystery of God's reason so that hopefully our faith finds a, a greater strength in reason, the powers of reason that are one with our faith, not in opposition to it because the, the Protestant Reformation put reason and faith at odds with each other. That's not so in the Catholic world. So, 
Okay, let me let me start. Let's let's go to the Perdiso. <clears throat> I want to I want to make this one started because it's along the lines of what everybody's saying. Um, if we look at the action of the whole of the Commedia, we we can say that the whole action of the Commedia um, uncovers the depth of sin in the human will, and the will is cent central because we we know from Christ who's asked us to love, that love is seated in the will to, to love somebody, not to know them, to love them. So the whole direction of the Paradiso picks up what was started in the, in the Purgatorio. It's to correct our wills, to, to improve our wills. But that work has been done in the Purgatorio. What's going to happen now is that Dante's, Dante um, is, is going to have his faith deepened by all the explanations that Beatrice will give him. So he's entering into mysteries and learning to see, in a sense, the mind of God and the way that that mind permeates, is reflected in everything in the world. That this is not a meaningless world. It's not a place of chaos or randomness. God is everywhere at work trying to help his children come back to him to understand what he's doing, to see his presence everywhere. So um, in, a, in a pretty fundamental way, the work, the action of the Paradiso is a strengthening of the mind. Be and it's important because if the mind, if the mind doesn't see the truth, how, how in the world can it help the human soul grow better? If he doesn't see something, if he doesn't know what he's seeing, he doesn't even know what he's feeling, or if, or if the feelings are right. Where is he? Um, so, the whole direction of the the Paradiso shows the mind opening to God's mind to learn the way it has permeated all of His creation to show that He's present everywhere. Um, so, indirectly, it. Um, it's a strengthening of man's faith because he sh he's shown, Beatrice shows him, there's so much more there than he sees. At the center of it, we will see this at the very end, the, the whole of the Paradiso is a glorification of the human person. That the human person is this extraordinary thing that God created. It, it couldn't be more opposite to the modern world because the Freudian psychology, Darwin, Everything about the modern world has shrunken man, made him a product of these blind forces. We can say that Dante stands on the threshold of the modern world. He looks back to a Catholic world in which the noblest thing in creation was the human person. God thought enough about it to send his son to die for him. In fact, God took on our nature. That's how much he loved it. So at the center of the Paradiso is, is this... Um, spirit of glorifying the human person. This is a human person. God did an extraordinary thing in creation. We're going to see that in the Paradiso. But the center of it is the human person. He was made in God's image. Christ took on his nature to take him back. He glorified um, that human person. So that's the whole direction of the Paradiso. Okay? Let's go back. Let's go back to the uh, beginning. And I'd like to just go through it. And, and take on um, um, those those first um, those first cantos and 
Before we do, I want to take a minute. I've not done this with you guys, but I hope I can do it here. I hope it works. This is the this is the uh, scheme I sent you earlier, and I just want to put it up here just to point something out. I'm assuming you all read it, but let, let me see if this works. Do you all see that? Are, are you all looking at a scheme? No? Yeah. Are you all seeing it? Can somebody answer? No. You don't see it? No. Yeah, we see you. Wow. Wow. Is he kind right now? We see the schemer. Wow. Okay, I don't know what to do. Somebody said they saw the schemer. Does somebody see it? No. No. I don't. No. Nobody sees the scheme. Nobody. Okay. So much for that. If um, if you don't don't go there right now. What I want to do is just draw a parallel and make clear because it'll it'll help everybody. Um, yeah, no scheme. Um, if you go to the, uh, I sent it to you today, so you should have it in the note that I sent. You've not. You you've got it in the um, study guide. But if you go to the scheme, what you'll see is that like the inferno and the and the purgatorio, the paradiso is divided into three, and that's not an accident. Because it's once again a, a reflection of Dante's showing that the Trinity escapes nothing. There's nothing. <laughs> Think about this. If God made the world, the Trinity is going to be reflected everywhere. So it's no accident that He's doing everything He can in the in the Terzarima, the you know the rhyme scheme, the three Canticles, Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso, and in each of the Canticles itself, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and Paradiso. Remember the. Inferno was the incontinent, the violent, and the fraudulent. And the purgatorio was the spiritual sins, um, pride, envy, and wrath. Um, sloth was the middle. And then the natural sins, loving excessively, avarice, gluttony, and lust. Here he's showing that there are three stages of man's return to God. Um, this is a growth in his faith. So in the first... Um, three heavens, the heaven of the moon and Mercury and Venice, Dante's dealing with weaknesses in our character. And there's no judgment here, uh, Melody, but it's a reflection of this fact that everybody who goes to paradise will share in paradise equally. Everybody's there. Nobody's left out. But people are there um, um, reflecting a light that reflects whatever merit they had in whatever they did in the world. So that, say, um, Peter and the original apostles, Mary, will all project a greater effulgence, a greater, and a different color. You know, Mary will show a color, an effulgence that will be different from Peter or St. Thomas's or Claire or. Because every person was a Christ bearer, everybody bore different sins, everybody had to deal with them. Nobody gets to heaven who's not um, been cleansed of sins, nobody be there in sin. But everybody who's there will reflect the great variety of God's creation on levels, grades, but everybody will be there. <clears throat> so in the first three heavens, uh, we're dealing with weaknesses in a human character. It didn't prevent them from getting to heaven, but it's reflected in the state of the state of beatitude, the blessedness. They're still blessed. They're still happy. They're still joyful. 
In the next three heavens, um, the Sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, um, they've gone beyond the shadow of the Earth, and they're entering into um, greater spiritual depths. The colors of each um, heaven, the degree of light, the closeness to God, all these things show something about God's nature. The principle of it we're gonna, is going to come clear when we turn to the book in a second. And in the last um, heavens, the heaven of the, um, of the fixed stars and the crystalline sphere, and finally the Imperium, heaven itself, are all more contemplative, the deeper spiritualized mystical um, virtues. Okay? Everybody participates them in one degree or another, but there are differences, and it's Dante's way of trying to show those differences. Okay? If you can, hold off on any questions for... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. And if it's an easy question, I'll take it. But if it's not, I'm going to ask you to wait because Dante is going to be answering this stuff. But go ahead. You've got your hand up? Oh, no. Okay. So, I didn't mean to do that. That's okay. So hold on to that scheme, okay? There are these three um, um, stages of man's approach to God from those virtues that still represents a kind of earthiness to what he's doing, um, to a movement of um, a more contemplative spirit, and finally to a more mystical, where, where you're actually in union with God. Okay? So let me, let, me go to the, let me go to the book. Can everybody go to the opening pages of the Paradiso? One of the fundamental principles that Dante um, repeats again and again in the opening six, seven, ten cantos, and he will repeat through the whole of the Paradiso, is that there's no place in the universe that does not in some way reflect the glory of God and his presence, his movement. Canto 1 begins, The glory of the one who moves all things penetrates all the universe, reflecting in one part more and another less. All the fathers, the church fathers said, one of the, imagine this, one of the signs of God's perfection is the variety of his creation. I want to say that again. One of the signs of his perfection is the variety of things he created, the degrees, the grades. I hope everybody sees that, that it's self-evident. Imagine if, every, if, imagine if everything were the same. Imagine if all of us were the same. What kind of world would it be? Yeah? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Everybody takes the variety of God for granted. But it's one of the signs of his perfect love that, that there are you know, people better than us, people not so good, some flowers that are better, the prettier than others. There's all this great variety. It's in the human order as well. God offers himself everybody to everybody, but everybody receives him according to the, the physical conditions because they're all different for every one of us, and the openness. That's a fundamental principle of the opening of the Paradiso. God offers himself everywhere. How well he's received depends on the material conditions of the people. We know some people aren't as keen in their bodies, some people slower, some faster, um, some have disabilities, some not. So it's a matter of not only the, the 
the physical qualities that have a deterministic aspect, but it's also um, a question of how open people are to receiving him. Some people are far more open to moving with him than others. Um, so, it's an interesting point because remember in the Purgatorio, the second level was the level of the envious. Some people wanted to see people who were better, who had things, lose those things. In heaven, we're going to see people are glad that others have them. If somebody has a better mind, if somebody's a better basketball player, if somebody's a better musician, people here take a joy in seeing that goodness. There's no envy here. Um, remember, before we start, just to put this in the context, remember that um, when um, God bless. at the end of the purgatory, remember that Beatrice looked up to the sun, looked directly at the sun, and um, and Dante could do the same, and was shocked because um, because he's never been able to do that as a human being. Remember, um, on page three ninety three, he saw Beatrice turn around, facing left, her eyes raised to the sun. No eagle ever could stare so fixed. She wasn't blinded by it. It's absolutely crucial that in our imagination we see that Dante, no, you're not going to get this in the naturalistic sciences. You, you may get this from the mystics of the church because the church believes in the real presence. You're not going to get it anywhere else. She looks directly at the sun and as um, one descending ray of the light will cause a second one to rise back up again just as a pilgrim yearns to go back home. So like a ray her act poured through my her act poured through my eyes into my mind gave me gave rise to my own I stared straight at the Sun as no man could what we're gonna learn when he's astonished remember he, the word he uses on 394 is transhumanize what we're gonna learn is that um, a human being um, transformed by grace won't be subject to the limits of our human nature, even though he remains human. That's why he uses the word transhumanized. On 395, he, he is so puzzled by what happens that he says, how can I rise through these light bodies here? Because he's entering the moon. We talked about this. In our world, one body can't occupy the same space as another. Dante will say that. 395, she says, God's higher creatures see the imprint of eternal excellence, that goal for which the system is created. And in this order, all created things, according to their bent, maintain their place. God ordered everything. So what was natural for man is to return to God. That's the most natural thing to happen. Except he makes it clear that sin gets in the way, and we turn away from him. So the purgatorio was an effort to recover that instinct so that the natural movement of God or man would be towards God. And they're doing that now through the heavens and amazing things will happen. So remember, in hell, the mode of, or the mode of knowing was irony. In purgatorio, it was wonder. 
amazing changes were taking place. Those wonders now are only going to multiply. Dante's entering a world in which everything he sees is going to have an aspect of wonder. Um, 398. We seem to be enveloped in a cloud as brilliant, hard, and polished as a diamond struck by a ray of sunlight. The eternal celestial pearl took us into itself. If I was a body on earth, we cannot think in terms of solid form without a solid, as we must here since body enters body. Let me stop for a second, I, because I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to play Beatrice, and I can't do it very well, but, you know, Beatrice is going to be showing Dante lots of things. For a moment, think about what the human mind does. We know that the human mind assimilates things. Animals do too. Animals assimilate things. They take things into them, right? Or they couldn't, they couldn't grow. They couldn't reproduce, right? The, the act of regeneration wouldn't go on in animals. It's only because they take things into them. We take things into us too because we're human. We have a body. We need food. But we also know that we take ideas into our heads. We assimilate them. Aristotle said, rightly, the human being knows the forms of things. He can take the forms of things into him and become one with them. So we don't take a tree into us, right? Solid object was. But we know the forms of tree. Otherwise, we couldn't distinguish a eucalyptus from a pine. Now, that is so obvious, you know, that it probably doesn't need saying, but I think it's important to say it. Human beings assimilate. We can take the forms of all things in creation into us and make them one with our own existence. So the human mind can penetrate things. So even if we don't see DNA, we know it's there. The mind itself has the capacity to penetrate, to enter into them. Remember, Dante's body's been transhumanized. I'm just trying to make it less unbelievable, you know, that because the human soul is an amazing thing. It can become all things. That's Aristotle's word. Here, when they enter the moon on 398, it's described as a pearl because the pearl is the most cloudy of the jewels, because the moon is the one farthest away from God. With each heaven, he's going to find each heaven more and more translucent, more and more beautiful. So there's going to be a different jewel to represent each heaven because Dante will be moving closer and closer to this great glory, the beauty and light of God's kingdom. Okay. Um, on page 400, I'm, I'm assuming this is where some of you probably threw up your hands. Dante's got this question how he can be entering the, um, the moon when he's got a body. And it leads him to ask this question on 399, um, why there are these spots on the moon? I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but I think it's good to take a minute. Um, the general answer back then by most people, including scientists, was that the spots on the moon represented um, de um, degrees of density and, and um, opacity. And Beatrice says, no, that's not true. Um, because if that were true, during an, an eclipse, the, the light would show through it. So on page 400, she says, take an experiment on the bottom of 400, set up three mirrors 
So the two of them are at a distance and one is farther beyond them and shine a light at them. She says, you know that even though one of the mirrors is way beyond the other two, the light will come back with the same intensity. So what people see in the, the moon is not these empty or translucent spots, but um, a, um, a degree of density that's appropriate for the moon. It's another illustration that God offers his light everywhere, but it's reflected different, differently according to the material with which it's received. Um, 401, within the highest heaven of God's peace resolve the body in whose power lies the essence of all things contained therein. The next sphere, which is lit with myriad eyes, divides this essence into many types. What she does is describe all of God's creation and shows that there are these degree of lights reflected in everything, even including the angels, and that's why there were angelic orders. There are some angels that are closer to God, some that are, don't have the same degree of light who are closer to us. I think there are nine orders of angels, the seraphim, the, the um, cherubim, um, principalities, things like that. So she concludes on 402, from this virtue, not from dense or rare, derive these differences of light we see. This is the formal principle that gives according to its virtue darker light. So what determines the degree of light, if we can put it that way, of God's presence in anybody, are those formal elements in each thing. Human beings have a different form. I know this is going to be, it's probably a, this is, this is where it gets abstract. Connie, stay with me. Stay with me here. Um, human beings have a different form from trees or apes or animals. They have a rational soul. So there's a greater beauty to the human being. Imagine a panel painting human or animals, and there would be a great glory to it. Imagine another panel showing the glory of humans. It would have to be greater. There's so much more to the human being than there is in an animal or a tree or a rock. So the principle of differentiation here is formal. Um, when Dante's there, suddenly he hears this voice approach him that he can hear, and the character introduces herself as Picarda. She says on 405, Our station which appears so lowly here has been assigned because we failed our vows to some degree and gave less than we pledged. She will tell the story of her and Constance being forced to have sex with men, and in Constance's case, marries. Um, and Dante will ask why, why, they're, why they're there, and um, whether they're illustrating Plato's belief that a soul upon death went to a planet, returned to the planet that was appropriate to, to that soul. And um, we learn differently on page 409. Beatrice says, I see now that you're torn between your two desires so that your eagerness is choking itself into speechlessness. You think, but if my will for good remains unchanged, how can another's violent act lessen the measure of my just deserts? If these two women were forced into sex when they had made vows to, the, to be nuns and constant married, Beatrice is making a distinction between what she will call the relative will and the absolute will. Both of them are in heaven 
because they, they both resisted their attackers. Neither one of them wanted to do that. They were forced into having sex and being married. She says on 409, these are the questions that have equal weight contending with your will to know. I first shall treat the one that is more poisonous, not the one most godlike of the seraphim, not Moses, Samuel, whichever John you choose, I tell you. Not Mary herself has been assigned to any other heaven than, than that of these shades you have just seen here. And each one's bliss is equally eternal and lend their beauty to the highest sphere, sharing one same sweet life to the degree that they feel the eternal breath of God. I want to go back to that first line at the top of 410. Not the most godlike. This is, I think, I can't remember, I think this is the first instance in Dante's Perdiso, in the whole of the Commedia, in which he uses a reflexive verb. It doesn't get into translation here. Um, Musa says, not the most godlike. The actual Italian goes, not the most ingodded. I want everybody to hear that hard. Not the most godlike of the servant. That's what we do in English. We wouldn't use a reflexive verb. Dante says, not the most ingodded. It will be one of, one of many reflexive verbs in which somebody is in selving themselves in another, or in othering, or in godding, or I am in youing. Because as the souls move up the, the, um, the heavens, they're participating more and more in the indwelling of God. They're becoming more one with each other while remaining the same. Now think about this, because one of the points I made in the pur Purgatorio is, in the Purgatorio, people are learning to risk their lives more. They're having to admit their sins. They're taking them on. They're making themselves vulnerable. It means they're growing in love, which means in a sense, they're risking taking another into them. But in the pur purgatory, they're doing it gladly, joyfully, because that's what love means. The, the ultimate source of our love as humans, being made in the image of God, is the indwelling of persons. That's the love we were called to. The world knows nothing about that. Love, in worldly terms, usually meaning getting what we want, having our way, um, compromising, doing this for another so we can get something back. That's not what Dante's showing us. But here she's saying, not the most godlike, of the, not the most ingodded of the seraphims, not Moses, Samuel, whichever John, you choose, I tell you, not Mary herself has been assigned to any other sphere. They're all there. Picarda makes clear she's only coming here to show the degree to which her love is different from somebody else. And it's crucial to see that because... Remember, um, on page, go back to 406. <clears throat> Indeed, the essence of this blessed state is to dwell here with his holy will. Because Dante says, aren't you unhappy <laughs> being here? She says, uh, it's blessed, um, his holy will, so that there will be no will but his. The order of our rank from, higher to, from height to height throughout this realm is pleasing to the realm. It's only reflecting the degree of their blessedness. There's nothing obdurate. There's no stubbornness. There's no, I wish I had more. Um, it, um, throughout his realm is pleasing to the realm as to that king who wills us to his will. 
In his will is our peace. It is the sea in which all things are drawn. Can anybody be in heaven and not be one with God's will? How do we get there if not by what we begin to do here? Yeah? Okay, what's the contrast? What's the obvious contrast to this scene with Picarda? Did I touch on that last week? Did I ask that question? What's the obvious contrast when she says, my will is to do God's will. I don't want to do anything but he, what he wills. In his will is our peace. I'm happy here to be otherwise would put me at odds with God's will. Who's the contrast to this, to Picarda at this moment? Test time, you guys. I should have sent a quiz. Should have put it on my letter to you guys. Who's the contrast? I know you're going to come on. Who's the contrast? Who was the person, the, the first dramatic scene that opened the Inferno? Do you remember what her response is when Dante felt sorry for her? Melody, do you have it? Or Connie or somebody? Francesca. Yeah, can you describe her, Connie? Do you remember what she said? What happened with her? Well, she was she was kind of asking God, you know, why didn't He have mercy on her? I guess, um, and 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 not put her in hell, perhaps maybe purgatory. <laughs> and uh, poor Dante was uh, quite pitiful. Yeah. Much. Her, yeah. But. yeah, he was feeling sorry for her, and her response was, "If the king of the universe um, were only friendly to us, you know, but obviously wasn't." It, so she's blaming God and feeling sorry for herself, and and wanting God's will to conform to hers. So here, just I mean, it, it's Dante using parallels again as a way of helping us to see something that the obvious contrast. This is the first character in the Paradiso of any importance. And remember that Francisco is the first person. We've talked about the way Dante lines up so we can set them next to each other because they help, they help us see things more clearly. Um, what, um, what bothers him is this difference between this um, relative will and absolute will. Um, and Beatrice makes the distinction on 413, absolute will does not consent to wrong, but it consents insofar as it fears if it draws back to fall into worse trouble. So that if a woman knows she's going to die because she doesn't give in to a man when he's raping her, she's doing something she doesn't want to do, so she has to give in in her fear that she'll be killed if she doesn't. Beloved of the first love, Lady Divine, I said, you whose words bathe me in warmth, waken me to life again, the depth of my deep love is not profound enough to find the thanks your graciousness deserves. May he who knows and sees all be my answer. I see man's mind cannot be satisfied unless it be illumined by the truth. We never stop continuing to learn to see in Dante. Because the mind is the guide. Either, either we learn to see the truth or we're in trouble. Because if we order our feelings according to our minds, and our minds are out of tune with the truth, we're in trouble. We can't rely on emotions. They in themselves don't know. Um, so he wants to be illumined again, and he's troubled. 414, within that truth, 
Once man's mind reaches it, it rests like a wild beast within its den. The animal in each one of us can quiet some. Sorry, something. Um, um, and it can reach it if not all desire is vain. So at the foot of truth, like shoots, our, our doubts spring up. This is a natural force urging us to the top from height to height. Um, Beatrice goes on, then Beatrice looked at, um, um, at him, and he, he cannot look at her because they're about to ascend, and with each ascent, she, she reveals more and more of the beauty. That's a really important point to see here. Later, Dante's going to be blinded. So Beatrice, Beatrice's beauty is already extraordinary. She's been given some power to, to, to mediate it here um, to, in order to be his guide. But it, with each advance, um, she radiates a, a greater beauty. Go back to 412, uh, just to complete this distinction. She's making a distinction between somebody who gives in out of fear, so they're not completely at fault, that's a relative will. She makes a distinction between that and the will that's absolute in refusing entirely, which is what leads to martyrs. Peter on the cross, all the disciples. The bottom of 4.11. The will abets the force when it gives in, even a little bit. This their will did, for they could have gone back into the cloister. Had they been able to maintain their will intact, like that of Lawrence on the grid, and Mucius, cruel to his own hand in fire. You know that in those stories we have in the Bible of people who were forced, um, were asked to denounce their God, and if they didn't, they would suffer. Their hands were forced to put on, you know, in fire and all sorts of different racks, even suffered death, and they didn't. So she's making a distinction between the absolute will when somebody gives up their life in order to maintain their vows or somebody who gives up because they're forced to do it. It raises this question of vows and giving of vows. Um, and um, on 415, you can see that a greater truth and beauty is radiating from Beatrice. 415, if in the warmth of love you see me glow with the light the world below has never seen, stunning the power of your mortal sight, you should not be awake, amazed, for it proceeds from the perfect vision, which the more it sees, the more it moves to reach the good perceived. The more So, in this class, the more that we can see of God, the, the more ardor will be awakened in us. If God is nothing, why move to him? You know, if he's no more than something, who's going to desire him? But if God is the cause of all of this and he permeates everything... How can anybody not want to rush to him with our desires? So the more one sees, you know that, the more ardor it awakens. And Dante's got this question about vows. You wish, because she's, she loved, her joy in him is increasing because his longing for the truth is increasing. He's left with this question about vows on 415. You wish to know if for a broken vow one can make compensation of the kind that makes the soul secure from litigation. And the argument she gives, because she's basing it on the freedom of the will, when somebody gives a vow for something, presumably he makes it, because that's a vow. Um, 4.16, Therefore God and man have sealed the pact 
This treasure then of which I speak becomes the sacrifice the free will wills itself. What compensation can you offer then? Can you use well what is no longer yours? If you cannot do good works with ill-got gains. So she says, if you make a bargain for somebody and you, and you break it, and it's worth two, give back four. That's how you compensate failing. You know, if you steal something and you steal $25, St. Thomas would say, you give back $25 and $2 more to answer the inclination in you. You don't ever answer it. It's like the bent tree. I think we've talked about that, yeah? The tree goes too far. It's not enough to put it in the middle. You have to go all the, the other way because there's always an inclination. And I think that's what was going on with Beatrice in the Purgatorio, that Dante had undergone this purgation, but there was still this something of a betrayal that had to be answered. So she says, if you, if you break it, um, you, you know, if, you, if it's worth two, you give four. But she said, with respect to vows um, given to God, there's no going back. Because once you give your will to God and you made a vow, you've given yourself. In that, in that sense, you're no longer your own. At the bottom of 416, the latter cannot be annulled except by its fulfillment. It was of this I spoke in such a precise terms earlier. Um, 417, let no one assume by his own choice responsibility for substitution. Be sure the white and yellow keys have turned. Those are the two keys of the church. If a woman has given herself to a cloister, that she gives herself to God, um, women can ask that it be annulled. But it, it, since the will was given to God, God has to decide. So at that point, the person places his hands, his vow back in the hands of the church again. Okay? There are, however, certain things once sworn that by the value can tip every scale. For these, no substitution can be made. So the, there's that image of the two, the two keys again. The authority of the church and the wisdom with which to use it. And I, I know I'm opening a can of worms here, and I, I really don't want to spend much time on it, because we've talked about this before. Um, remember the two keys. We've talked about the two keys Christ gave Peter. The authority, the power to do something, and the wisdom. We, we know that lots of priests, lots of bishops, lack wisdom or integrity, you know, and still use their power. The church suffers abuse all the time. So it's not a reason for leaving the church. It's just a reason if anybody's looking for solace in the church, particularly with respect to annulments or, you know, somebody making a vow into the religious life, that they seek the help of the church. So Dante's just showing his practical good sense here in the, in the closeness with the church. On 418... He says, I saw my lady so caught up in a joy, we soared into the second realm as she went into that new heaven's glow. The planet shone with more than its own light. And if the star changed then and seemed to smile, imagine what took place in me, a man whose nature is transmutability. Transmutability, you know, mutability means a capacity to change. So Dante's only recognizing a changeability that he can, he's in a state of being changed. So in a world in which grace is operative, 
One of the most important things is, is the person open to the changes those graces are asking of him. And here as they, as they rise into the heaven of Mercury, um, the splendors increase. I saw more than a thousand splendors move towards us, and in each one I heard the cry, Behold, one more who will increase our love. I want to repeat that again. Behold, one more who will increase our love. What would Guido del Duce's response have been on earth? Do you remember Guido? Where Guido? Remember where we saw him? Guido del Duce? The level of envy. Remember, he's the one who talked about the partnership and why men become miserable because of this partnership, because they put their minds on earthly things. And because they do, those things are divisible. You know, the more, the more, so the more people who come over for turkey pie or, you know, the less there is for me. In heaven, that's not true. The question is, will people get past envy, put their envy away to open to what's going on? Or does envy drive them? I mean, that's the sin being purged there. Here, people are glad because, think about this. This is amazing. So in heaven, when a soul comes in, if a, if a soul is like a mirror of light, with each soul that enters heaven, that light, like the multiplication of the fishes, will multiply infinitely. The radiance will increase. It's not an earth where things diminish with sharing. Here it increases. There's a greater glory. So that's going on infinitely all the time. I saw more than a thousand splendors move. It's here at this level that um, Dante meets Justini, Justinian. Go on over to uh, page 422. It's here that Justinian, Justinian describes the flag, the banner of God's justice moving across history. It's really remarkable. Um, um, I don't want to. I don't want to go into all of it, but just a. If I can just, um, um, he starts with Pallas in the Aeneid. Remember, Pallas was the young Evander's son that Evander sent with a, with Aeneas to fight um, his battles, and um, Mezentius's son or Mezentius killed. No, no, no. It was it was uh, Turnus who killed Pallas. Yeah. Wasn't he talking about Aeneas? Where Doc? On that first Canto Six. Where? Behind the warrior, once Constantine reversed the eagle's flight. Where are you? Okay. No, what line? Uh, three. Oh, here's four. Sorry, four twenty. Behind the warrior who went. Oh yeah, right. Go ahead, Doc. Make the point. Well, I thought read, you were saying. No, read the past. Oh right, yeah. I thought you were saying Turnus. Yeah, no, I was, but go ahead. Oh. No, because it's good. Read it. Once Constantine reversed the eagle's flight against the course of heaven, which it pursued behind that warrior who led Lavinia. One hundred and one hundred years and more, the bird of God remained on, on Europe's edge, close to the mountains, whence it first arose. Yeah. So it begins, <laughs> thanks, Doug. It begins with Aeneas, whom we've read, on page... Um, 422, he goes on to uh, move in the direction of the wars between the Guelphs and Ghibellines, but he says, 
Behold what courage consecrated of the courage which began with that first hour when Pallas died to give it its first realm. Because that was the founding of Rome, that battle, you know, and, and Pallas was the first great sacrifice and war that led to the founding of Rome. So he's talking about the way in which God's justice was established on earth in the founding of Rome. That's the subject we took up when we read Virgil's Aeneid. He follows this. Um, he describes um, the death of Pallas. Um, he makes denunciations of the Gelfs and Ghibellines in their wars. And he brings us up to the present. Um, but here's, here's where I want to go. When he's describing the movement of God's justice and the role that Rome played in establishing that justice on the earth, this is so important. Take a look at all the regimes in the world. Go to China, go to Africa, wherever you want to go, and ask yourself the role that Rome played. Now, in America today, lots of people want to have nothing to do with that past. Dead white men, you know. Think about the civilization that Rome brought to the world, the sense of justice, because it lines up with Mosaic Law, what God gave Moses on the prophetic side of it. We've been talking about the parallels between foundings, um, the tribes of Israel, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the founding of Rome. Here he continues with his description of, description of this movement of God's justice, and he comes to this point when he describes all of the Caesars, the families fighting the, um, on page 425. But what this banner, the cause of my words, had done before and what it would yet would do throughout the realm it conquered, all of this appear as dim and paltry deeds if we but see it with clear eyes and honest hearts as it appears in the third Caesar's hand. That's Tiberius. Because the living justice that inspires me granted it, in the hand of whom I speak, the glory of the vengeance of his wrath. Now marvel at what I shall add to this later. It sped with Titus to avenge the vengeance taken for the ancient sin. Lombard fangs bit into the Holy Church. He goes on and on, continues to um, come up to the present time. Um, and she says on page 426, or he says, sorry, this little star, <coughs> the earth, is made more beautiful by valiant souls whose zealous deeds on earth were prompted by desire for lasting fame. So even though people may have committed faults, because all people do, people who were inspired by a divine sense of justice brought a greater degree of justice to the world, just by virtue of that fact. Think about the cost of Moses. You know, when, when he offered the t tablets to the Jews, I mean, there was nothing but trouble after that, but not only for the Jews in the desert, for the, but for the people they went to war against. The more desire tending towards that goal, divine justice, thus deviating from true love, the less intensely burn the rays that rise towards heaven. To see the perfect balance we have here between reward and merit gives us joy, for we see each commensurate with each. Thus we feel the sweetness of true justice so much alive in us, our will cannot be warped and made to turn to bitterness. That is, the more you love justice, the closer you approach God, the greater a joy you will take in that. The Old Testament is constantly calling man to just. The New Testament, even with Christ, he came to fulfill the law. But here's where I want to go. Um, Dante's left troubled with what he just heard. 
<clears throat> on page 428. Nor long did Bert Beatrice let me suffer before announcing with a glowing smile that would rejoice a man condemned to burn. My intuition, which is never wrong, informs me. By the way, I hope everybody's seen. This is just another instance of the indwelling. She already knows what he's thinking. We know that because it happens again and again. Almost always, before he speaks a thought, she already knows what's on his mind. By the way, before we before we go any farther, because I, I want to try to make this as human as I can. Don't all of you have those kinds of experiences once in a while, particularly in a marriage? I mean, aren't there times when you know, and sometimes maybe you don't want to know, what your husband or your wife is going to say? Um, because at some point, you, you get to know each other fairly well, and very often you don't have to speak the words, but everything about you is... You know, so there's already some sense in our human nature that we have these intuitive senses often of, um, there's a wonderful example of it I remember in Shakespeare's um, Julius Caesar. Um, I'm just giving this example because it comes to mind that to me it's a wonderful, because I think women are more intuitive than men. Most, Melody, most. <laughs> Uh, sorry, I, I need, I should be doing, I should be doing more penance in this Lent than I am. Um, there's a wonderful scene in Julius Caesar's, I mean, uh, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, when Brutus, who's planning with Cassius to execute Caesar, they're going to execute, remember, this is the bottom of the inferno, because Satan is eating Brutus, Cass, Cassius, and Judas. Cassius and Brutus are plotting to kill their lord. This is Christ saying, give unto Caesar. He's asking human beings to obey, obey Caesar in his appropriate. The only exception to that is if um, they ask Caesar, ask us to do something in disobedience of God. Otherwise, we should be giving obedience to Caesar. That's God's call. And, unless it, it puts us in a position of disobeying God. Because we're always asked to obey God, even if it means going against Caesar. Okay? But this is how important Caesar is. I just want to underscore that. He's, Christ himself said, give unto Caesar. The political ruler, whether you like him or not, um, demands our obedience. Dante's got this question on his mind, my intuition, which is never wrong. In four, oh, wait, sorry, Brutus. Brutus comes home one night after he's talking with Cassius, and his wife says, I know there's something wrong with you. How many times have women said to husbands, what's wrong? I think women's emotional intuitions are far more sensitive to these things than men. Um, but that's just an example of the sort of thing I'm saying that Beatrice always, <laughs> always knows in advance what he's thinking. She says, my intuition, which is never wrong, informs him that you do not understand how just vengeance can be justly can can justly be avenged. If something's just, how can you justly avenge it? That's not his question, okay? The question goes back to what Justinian had just described um, Titus doing on page 425. Now marvel at what I shall add to this later. It sped with Titus to avenge the vengeance taken for an ancient sin. Titus raised Jerusalem. He destroyed Jerusalem. This is the destruction of Jerusalem. Just Justinian is describing it in that way. 
here is to me one of the most perfect um, descriptions, explanations of the crucifixion as, as I have ever seen. Canto 7, I think, is one of the central cantos of the whole of the Commedia. Um, this exchange goes on, um, and Beatrice says, you want to know this, here's the answer. Fade, page 429. This is one of the, I think, one of the central um, principles, beliefs of our faith. Because for his own good he would not let his will be curbed, the man who Numo birthed damned himself, damning all his progeny. That's Adam. Therefore the human race lay sick below within their air for long centuries um, until the word of God chose to descend. There moved by his unselfish love alone, he took unto himself in his own being that nature which had wandered from its maker. When we turned against God, it involved our whole nature as human beings. Now listen to my reasoning. Once joined with its first cause, this nature was, as it had been first created, pure and good, but by itself alone, by its own act, having abandoned truth and the true life, out of God's holy garden it was chased. Then if the crucifixion can be judged as punishment of that nature assumed, no penalty could bite with greater justice. Just as none could be judged as more unjust, considering the person who endured it, with whom that other nature was combined. Thus one event produced different effects. God and the Jews both pleased by this one death, for which earth shook and heaven opened wide. Now it should be not difficult for you to understand the concept of a just vengeance being avenged in time by a just decree. Is that clear? Who can I, can somebody help out? Anybody paraphrase it? Maria, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you take this on? Can you tackle it? What is she? What What is she saying to Dante? How can a just vengeance be justly avenged? If the if the crucifixion be judged as punishment of that nature assumed, Christ took on man nature, no penalty could bite with greater justice. There could be no more just... By the way, either Christ's crucifixion was just or it makes no sense. I hope that's clear. When he said, I came to... I came to... Um, I came to fulfill the law. If his crucifixion was not just then all of Christianity is a parody. It's fruit pointless. Um, if the crucifixion be judged as punishment of that nature assumed, no penalty could bite with greater justice. It was just. Just as none could be judged as more unjust considering the person who can endured it. Maria, what's, what's she saying? Can you just, in your own words... This is the heart of our faith. Yeah, just that it's 
they have to be from death. So, um, and let me close the door. I didn't know um, you had a dog. <laughs> what is it? What is it? Uh, it's a Maltese. Yeah. A white Maltese. Mm -hmm. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think it's because of um, the sins, right? So he took, even though he didn't sin, he 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 took the he he made himself uh, the victim of all sins. So in that in that way, it's it's just because uh, somebody is paying for all that. Yeah. And it was him. And it had to be him because um, uh, what I heard is that like the, the depths of our sins, because it's towards God, who is infinite, uh, there is no way we could ever pay it. So good, good. God, like someone infinite and, and God had to take it to pay to someone infinite, like yeah. to himself. Yeah. Yep. Good. Any questions or any 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 anybody else want to jump in on this and offer a thought? It's really important. It's really at the heart of our faith. Absolutely, the heart. If that was not a just act, then justice is made a parody. Christianity is futile. Our call to just to be just. I hope everybody sees the paradox here. Um, is Maria? Um, if you look at the nature assumed, it was human nature, then no act was more just. We sinned. We had to give satisfaction for our sin. Since our sin was against God, I mean, just as Maria put it so well, if our sin was against God as he's infinite, how could man repay it? What could we do to, to give satisfaction for it, right? There's nothing we could have done. Even if we gave our lives, it would, it would not... Justice is real, and I just think in a fundamental Protestant world, we've lost a notion of it. Justice is real in God's world, and everything about our world wants to make it go away. Be nice, get along, be sweet, get along, be nice. Um, don't do anything to displease or bother people, go against them. Justice means you're going to do hard things sometimes. Um, if you look at the nature assumed... No act was more just. Christ took on a fallen nature. We couldn't answer it ourselves because the sin we committed was against God. The only way to atone for that sin, this is the interesting thing, there would have been no way to atone for it except by a God and a man because it was a man sinning against God. Nobody gets that today. Is that clear? It was a sin against God. Could God himself do it? No, because it was the sin of a man. Only a God and a man could answer that sin. It took that. So in terms of the nature assumed, there was no act more just. In terms of the person who assumed it, because Christ was innocent, he was without sin, no act was more unjust. Thus, one event produced different effects. God and the Jews were both pleased. Why was God pleased? No, why were the Jews pleased? Why were the Jews pleased? Because 
because the crucifixion answered the need for human justice. They were pleased because they thought God, Christ was being blasphemous. He was claiming to be God and they believed he wasn't. They believed he should have been crucified. This man was claiming to be a God. You know, we see that over and over in the Testament. They wanted to kill him. So when he was crucified, they were pleased. Why was God pleased? God so loved the world, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son because he loved man. God, this is stunning, this stuff. Because he loved us so much that he would have sent his son in his own nature, take on our nature because only by doing that could he, could he answer our wrong. He loved, he, um, he was pleased at what he did because he opened the gates for salvation again. Yeah? Am I laboring a point? Is, was this obvious to everybody? I mean, it's right at the heart, but I think most of us don't think about it. You, I'd really like an honest response from you guys. What's your response to this? I'm asking this really honestly. Michael, what's your response? Anybody? No? My response is I'm behind on the reading, Bob. Oh, okay. But you understand the discussion, right? I mean, you, you're, you're following the discussion, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Melody, what's your response? Go ahead. Well, I, I understood it like that when I was reading it, but there's so much that I forget, you know, why I was thinking that, and then you bring it up, and it's like, yes, I remember it. So you're not belaboring a point. It really helps us. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm able to understand it, but you give it light in three or four other different ways, and that just helps us even more. I think it needs to be heard. I, you know, I believe that. I've been saying that forever, that we can have a thought in our mind, but it needs to be given a body. We need to hear it, and we need to hear it again and again. My hope is that you'll never forget this, because this is at the center of our faith. I, to me, this is one of the most amazing truths of our faith. How many people know this today? To me, it's stunning. It's just, it's amazing to think about it. Here, let's go on with this because it doesn't stop here. 4.30, by now you see your mind is all entangled with one thought after another, and you want, um, you say, I clearly understand your words, but why God did not choose some other way? I mean, she's just answered it. <laughs> I don't think Dante's getting it all, but the reason, brother, for that choice lies buried from all men's eyes until their inner sight has grown to ripeness. We need to... God, it's just this theme of opening our eyes. We think we see. We don't. Um, divine goodness, which from itself respects, rejects all envy, sparkles so that it reveals the eternal beauties burning in itself. That which derives directly from his being, from then on is eternal. For his seal, once it's stamped, can never be effaced. Um... Did God make the angels directly? Yes, he did. Did God make man directly? No, he did not. He made him out of earth. So the argument he's making here, that's which derives directly from his being from then on is eternal. God made all the angels eternally. That means when they damned or turned, they turned away eternally. That's their condition. 
That which derived directly from his being is wholly free, not subject to the law of secondary things. It most resembles him, most pleases him. The sacred flame which lights all of his creatures burns brightest in what's most like himself. He made us, but um, out of the dust. Sin is that only power that takes away man's freedom and his likeness to true God and makes him shine less brightly in its light. Now go back. Here's the completion of the theology, which to me is central to the whole. It, I don't think anybody can understand the Inferno or the Purgatorio or the Paradiso without this Canto 7, because it, it's articulating the, the whole theology of the crucifixion and the redemption. Um, so here... Your nature, when it sinned once and for all, in its first root, was exiled from these honors, as it was dispossessed of paradise. We fell and lost it. Nor, you, nor could mankind recover what was lost, as you will see it, you think carefully, except by crossing one of these two fords. Either that God simply, through clemency, should give remission, that is, let it go, let it pass, forgive man, or that man himself, to pay his debt of folly, should atone. Can man atone for that sin? No. So either he's going to be left damned or God's going to forgive him. Is that clear? This is, Right now it's a, class, it's a class in logic, yeah? Now fix your eyes on the infinity of the eternal counsel. Listen well as well as you are able to my words. Given his limits, this is what Maria was saying a minute ago, given his limits, man could never make amends, never in his humility could man, obedient too late, descend as far as once in disobedience he tried to climb. If God is infinite, how can man descend to those depths? He doesn't have it. Um, he could descend as far as once in disobedience he tried to climb, and this is why mankind alone could not make his amends with God. He couldn't because he's a creature. Thus it remained for God in his own ways, I mean in one of them or both, to bring man back to his integrity. But since the deed gratifies more the doer, the more it manifests the innate good goodness of the good heart from which it springs, so then that everlasting goodness which has set its imprint on the world was pleased to use all of its means to raise you up once more. Between the final night and the first day, no act so lawfully, so magnificent was there or shall be there in either way. For God who gave himself gave even more so that mankind might raise itself again than if he simply had annulled the debt, and any other means would have been less than justice if God's only Son had not humbled himself to take on mortal flesh. Okay, let me just stop here for a second. So man, when he fell, was damned. God could have forgiven it, just let it go, or he could have involved man in his own redemption. He sent his son to take on our nature so that we became involved in our redemption. Christ asks us, these are his words, repent, follow him. He's asking us to do that, okay? Let me take those two options just for a second. Why didn't, so, and Dante's, or Beatrice is saying, since the deed gratifies more the doer, the more it manifests the innate goodness of the good heart from which it springs, so then um, everlasting goodness was set as seal was greater. No other act ever, ever in the world will ever compare to that. 
So here's my question. Why was it a greater good for God to do that than just simply to forgive man? Right? I want to go back. I just want to be so clear. God faced two options. He could have just forgiven man, right? But he didn't. He sent his son and asked us to become involved in it. That's why Christ says, do these things, right? He says, repent, follow me, pick up your cross. He offers help, the Eucharist, to help with that because he knows how hard it is. Why else would he do that? If man's called finally to a divine end, how can man get there except through the Eucharist? Except by a divine help. So there's those two options. He could have damned man, left him there, or he could have forgiven him. He chose a middle path. By the way, there's Aristotle's meme. There's Aristotle's meme. He chose a middle path. Why was um, forgiving? Why would have? Why would forgiving him have been a lesser good than what he did? I want to take a minute with that. We'll close the class on this note. I really want to take a minute. Don, Beatrice is saying, the greater the goodness, um, um, the greater the act. He could have forgiven man, he didn't. Um, he could have damned him. He chose instead um, to have his son do what he did. Why was that greater than just forgiving man? Can we take a minute with that? Wait, before we go on, I'm, I'm so enjoying this. I mean, I, you know... Connie, where are you? Come, yeah, there you are. You know, I was, I was, because I've been worried about all of you guys a little bit. I, this, this is so theological. You know, it's, it's intellectually so heavy. It's, it's just not like the other. But I hope you're beginning to see there's extraordinary wisdom in what Beatrice is giving Dante. This was a Catholic inheritance up until the Reformation. The Reformation shattered it. This, this is the inheritance of our faith. Um, this, and this part is really, theolo I mean, it's theological, but I hope you're all seeing the wisdom in it, that there's an extraordinary wisdom in what Dante's doing with Beatrice and himself right now. Yeah? It's, it's just amazing to me. Anyway, any thoughts? Why, why, why didn't he just forgive everybody? Well, because, because God is perfect, and uh, seeks perfection in, in his creation. It's a, there are examples all through the Old Testament where uh, God's presence requires a sanctification of materials and human beings that they must be sanctified to be in his presence, just as the, uh, the Levites that are carrying the Ark of the Covenant so for God to simply forgive all of the sins of man without involving man in the redemption process would, would not satisfy his need for uh, sanctification. Uh, to, I mean, we're called to be with God. So yeah. to be with him in a sinful state would not be, would not be, see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. And, and let, me, let me try to, if I can add to it, Mike, um, not even just sanctification, but not even the kind of perfection Dante attained at the at the um, earthly paradise, because he was in a condition of having, you know, lost his sins. But I made the point then, even that wasn't enough, because along Mike's line, Mike's line, um, the 
that in taking on our human nature and taking it back to heaven, Christ was calling us to share in his divinity. So that would have taken us beyond Eden. That would have taken us beyond the fullness we had originally before the fall. I hope everybody's seen. This is extraordinary. The wisdom here to me amazes me. It knocks me over. And sorry, I don't. You're, you you had a thought. Go ahead. I'd like. No, well, I, he did a great job. I was thinking as we've talked about, we see things with human understanding. If we think about ourselves and our kids, if you let them get just get away with it, there is no growth. There is no approaching what you want from them. And so through the crucifixion and redemption that's bringing us to God. Okay, let me, yeah, that's, let me, let me, I'm going to be, I'm not as going to be as good as you are being, and what happens when you forgive somebody? Just let it go. If man fell already, by the way, this is, so the devil tempted Adam and Eve, or Eve, and then Eve tempted Adam, and Adam gave in. Adam and Eve fell. They were in a fallen state. What would happen if God had forgiven them? Wouldn't they do it again? I mean, I mean to go to Michael, it's another way of I'm being sort of stark here. Does everybody I mean, does everybody does anybody have a problem with that? Is that I'm hoping that's self-evident. Yeah. I that it, if you just forgive, then Nobody has a reason for not doing it again. So here's the problem that Christ introduced into the world and what Dante's getting at here. The problem is you, you can't hold a man in damn... I mean, he was damned uh, or, or he, God could forgive him, let it go. But he chose this middle way. I hope everybody's cleared how important that is for every one of us because it means either we leave a sinner where he is damned, ourselves or somebody else, or, or we forgive them, let it go, in which case we're going to do it again. Or we find some way of helping to attain a justice with mercy. Is that clear? I, I just don't want to go past this because it's right at the heart of our faith. Did everybody understand that? Or do you have a question? Connie, you look like you've got a question. No. Can you say it one more time? To go back to Anne's point, because I thought what she and Michael were actually approaching the same ground. God, God could have left us damned, or he could have overlooked it and just forgiven us. The argument that I'm making, I mean, Dante doesn't make it, but it's implied. If God had forgiven us because we were weakened, what would stop us from committing the sin again? Particularly since we'd done it. If we could get away with it in our weakness, how would we not do it again? The problem is, if so we're left, and I'm saying we're left with the same situation now with ourselves and others. Somebody can be left damned, they're doing something they shouldn't do, or we can just overlook it. If we overlook it, what's going to happen? With our kids, with each other. Truly with each other. I mean, let's say we've got drinking problems or alcohol, whatever drugs or whatever it is. Because I'm thinking about the problem, I'm thinking about all of us as human beings and the struggles we have with our children, ourselves. If you continue to overlook something, what's going to happen? I mean, I don't understand in what ways that's helping anybody become just or loving. 
So what Christ did, and he was very explicit about this, is he fulfilled the law, the every iota of it, but in love. So the problem every human being faces is not to leave somebody damned or to overlook it, but to work for a justice and bring to it a mercy. That's what Christ did. Because either one of those by itself, just, justice by itself is going to do what? It's going to leave somebody damned. Because none of us deserve something, you know, if, we, if that's all we deserve, we're, we're all, I hope everybody's clear on that. If all we get is justice, we're damned. Because we all deserve it, we're all in sin. If we overlook something and we skip it, we're not helping because the person's just going to keep doing it. And the more, the more somebody accommodates to it, the more likely the person's going to feel it's okay to do it. God chose a middle way, and there was a greater goodness in his, if I can go back to the words. Um, but since the deed gratifies more the doer, the more it manifests the infinite goodness of the good heart from which it springs, so then the everlasting goodness which has set its imprint on the world was pleased to use all of its means to raise you up once more. Between the final night and the first day, no act so lofty, so magnificent was there or ever shall be. Will there ever be an act to compare with what Christ did? Absolutely not. We lost God. He could have left us damned or he could have just forgiven it. He didn't want to leave us damned because he loved us. If he overlooked it, we would just do it again. Why not? He chose a middle way, and there was a greater goodness in it. He sent his son because only a God who became human could, answer, could give satisfaction for that original sin, right? But in doing that, Christ asked us to be involved in our own redemption. The modern Protestant says, I believe in Christ, I'm saved. That's it. No more work to be done. Just believe. Christ says, he who believes in me and, you know. There's a greater complexity in our church. We have, a we have the sacramental nature of our church to help. We've got all these things. We're called to Lent is a call to repentance. We're, we're asked to undertake it gladly. So here in Canto 7, I think, and I, there's no way to make sense of hell without this. We can't understand what's going on there. There's no way to make sense of purgatory without it. Purgatory is the work we do with mercy, with Christ, to return. Perdiso is that joy into which we enter um, by coming closer to the mind and heart of God. Let me stop. Is that, Connie, does that? Yes, that helps a lot. Anybody, anybody else? I, I, you know, I, I, the, I, I hope what everybody's seen, because I know going into this, I, I've taught it too many times um, with, you know, with kids. Um, the Paradiso is so intellectual, but the wisdom contained, I'm just hoping everybody sees the wisdom that we've been, the, you know, Beatrice. Uh, so, vows, our nature, the grace, the way it transforms. Dante's entering a moon. He's actually entering into the body of a moon. Picarda talks to him about um, the, the way in which God's being permeates the whole world. And there's this great variety that's resulted from it. 
the vows, um, the justice of God, and here in, in Canto 7, the whole theology um, behind it. So even though, you know, the justice, the, uh, how can a just vengeance be justly avenged? How can such things be? There's only one, well, wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out of the limb. There was only one event that will ever make sense of that phrase. How can a just vengeance be justly avenged? How, how, how was there any justice to Jerusalem being destroyed? Titus was the, that's what Donnie's talking about when Caesar Titus destroyed it. Because it was just in the reasons that Dante gave. And the Jews were glad, so were God, but for different reasons. The extraordinary theology behind this, for me, it puts Catholics on edge because it means Catholics just can't go into the world and, you know, and we're not supposed to blow it up or take rage, but we are supposed to live this stuff. There's an extraordinary wisdom here in what the church has. And it's not getting passed on, sadly. So the, I'm, I'm just, it's by way of encouraging all of you. I know, I know intellectually this is a challenge, um, but I would just like to encourage you all to stay with it because the wisdom in this Paradiso work is extraordinary. It's just going to get richer and richer as we go along. This is just the beginning of it. So I'm just asking you know, that you be patient, and even if it gets hard, stay with it because it will bear fruit. This is an amazing work, an amazing work. Any last cost comments or thoughts? Yeah, Tina, go ahead. Uh, oh, go ahead, Tina. Oh, could you just say one more time uh, the reason um, uh, Christ had to take on the human nature? Our original uh, sin, I, yeah, our original sin was against God. We were humans. We defied him. We disobeyed him. God asked Adam and Eve not to eat of that tree. They did. They defied God. I believe, following, there's a defiance. I believe this. I think I'm orthodox here. I believe there's a defiance in every one of our souls. I know it's in me. I believe it's in all of us. Hidden away in all of our niceness, there's a defiance. We defied God. That's our original sin. We carry it. All of us carry it. If there's anybody in this line that's going to say they're not stubborn, or I'm not going to believe you. You go to somebody else. I'm too old to fool around with this. And I know it too well in myself. There's this defiance in all human beings. That's our sin against God. It's the one sin. And by the way, what does the church ask? Obedience. 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 I was talking, actually, Father Flynn. I think Father Flynn would enjoy this. Father, because I, I see him, I, I confess with him each month, and I, I enjoy our time together. He was talking about um, the practice of outdoing others in love and faith and hope and I was laughing. I, I'm going to have no part of that. So, Because what I hear is, remember the two disciples who said, who's going to be next to God, whoever's going to outdo? When I hear stuff like that, I hear pride. So I'm, <laughs> I'm half laughing at Father. And, and then Father made the comment. He said, you know, we used to say that in seminary. And then somebody said once, um, so um, how well do we outdo each other in, a, in obedience? <laughs> and I thought, good. <laughs> you know, Anyway, Tina, sorry, the, you know, okay. the, 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 our, our original sin was our disobedience. We defined God. And there was no way for mankind to atone for that because our sin was against God. How do you atone for a sin against an infinite being? 
Nobody could atone for it who wasn't in infinite himself. So we're left stuck. Man's in hell. God could forgive us or leave us there. Has everybody seen this? What he did was take on our nature. And in that sense, nobody was more justly punished because our nature deserved a punishment. We offended, we disobeyed God. So in terms of the nature taken on, nobody was more justly punished. If I just at some point, if we don't see that there was a justice to the cross, we're not understanding Christianity. But at the same time, if you look at the person who assumed that nature, it was the second person of the Trinity, was God himself, nobody was more unjustly punished. So out of that result came two effects. The Jews were glad, lots of people were glad, in fact lots of people today who are not Jewish are glad. Um, and God, God was pleased, but for different reasons. He was pleased because the doors of salvation were open. What Dante does after that is he goes through this history, you know, that, that a man fell and God could have left man there or forgiven him. And that was the question I wanted to press on because it seems to me it's, it's, it, it, it reveals a truth about our faith and it goes so, so directly to our own human actions. We can either leave people in the sins in which they exist or you know, do whatever they do, threat, threatened with damnation, or ignore them, forgive them, forgive them, let them go. If we look at Christ's acts and the, and the wisdom that Beatrice is acting, she's saying there was no greater good than what God did because either one of the other things would have not been a good. To leave man damned would have... By the way, I hope I, we've gone through this. That would not have been a good thing. The angels chose to fall. Eve didn't. She was tricked. There were extenuations. How fair, How just would... God, this scares me. Would God have been just? scares me to talk about this. Would God have been just if he just damned her the way the angels were? The angels damned themselves. Eve was tricked. So he could have left us damned or simply forgiven it. He chose a middle way. And it was the only way that could have atoned for the sin. It had to be somebody who was both a God and a human. The problem that it left us with is we face the same problem. We can leave people in their sins or forgive them. Or we can struggle to try to live justice and bring a mercy to it that we can't do on our own. We don't have it in us. It comes from God. It means going to a cross. That's what Christ calls us to. Tina, does that? Yes. Um, so the human nature is the just part because the human nature is fallen. Right, but the but the death of Christ that it makes it just because of the human nature part of him. Right. And okay. unjust because of who he was because he didn't sin, he didn't deserve to be punished. What he, this is amazing because what he did th this is where it gets hard for humans. He didn't deserve to be crucified. Right, he was innocent. He com he committed no sins. We're asked to bring justice to a world at the same time that we offer a mercy 
that people don't deserve. How's that for a problem? Mm. Is everybody following? This scares me. I want to. I want to get off this class right now. It's making me nervous. <laughs> Is everybody following? That's the wisdom of our church. That's the wisdom of our church. I wish it were more out there, but Maria, you got a thought? Do you have something? Anybody? Anybody? Karen, Bob. I'm so enjoying this because it's so heavy. I mean, this is our faith. This is our faith. This is, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not out of place. You guys have more to work with. More's, where more is given. God, scares me to say it. No, truly, who knows this stuff today? You know, God, that you guys are hanging around on this. It helps keep me humble a little bit. I, I was thinking of uh, vows and how important they are. And when I was reading about it, I wasn't thinking in terms of our marriage vows. Yeah, but they're there, Connie. Yeah. But it's like how important, you know, being married and, and, and doing it, you know, God's way. Um, I was just thinking of, you know, being a priest and a nun. I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> what about being married? That's a vow. That's, no, I, I couldn't agree more, Connie. I, and, you know, what, what it so unsettles me, it, it's just uh, you guys are on, whether you know it or not, you entered into the paradise two hours ago into, you know, this the intellectual stuff that, was making most of you squirm a little bit. Um, Connie, I couldn't agree more. What's, what's so hard today is that marriages have become a convention, Protestant secular world, so you get married, you leave it. At, you know, lots of things happen in marriage because you have to face failings everywhere, everywhere. Um, but who, who enters in, I mean, truly, who enters into a marriage today understanding the depth of this stuff? I think that's why they have pre-Cana now as a, requirement that but even then how many how many married couples enter into marriage with any sense of what you're talking about you know the the question you're raising because the whole world is you know you can marry six or seven times henry the eighth what five six marriages god um hollywood actors and actresses getting married four or five times and um but uh, no, I think your your point is well taken because because when you give a vow to another person, you you give up yourself. How easy is that for any of us? Even in good marriages, you know, even in good marriages, how easy is it for us to to do what Dante's showing you? We we're in we're in a rare story right now. But anyway, it's a it, it's a good point, Connie. Anybody, anybody else for tonight? Um, let's see, what more, what more can I add to make this load heavier than it already is for you guys tonight? <laughs> Listen, bless your souls, all of you. I, I um, so deeply wish all of you to have a good Easter and to not get there too soon. We've got Holy Week still ahead of us, so I hope all of you have a, a good Holy Week. And um, I have the feeling that 
all of you are taking most of this pretty seriously, so I'm glad. Um, whatever goes on, be glad. That's Christ our church. Be glad for what's going on. Um, have courage. Don't be afraid. Stay with this stuff, okay? Um, and for those of you who are not kept up in the reading, <laughs> or who are, you guys toughen up a little bit here, you do some hard reading. This this is hard stuff, hard stuff. But there's a great good in it, so stay with it, okay? Um, all of you keep Suzanne and me and our family in our, in your prayers. We will keep you in our prayers, okay? Have a good Holy Week. See you next. So next Tuesday we'll see we'll see you then, okay? Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Have a good night, everyone. Bye-bye.